1: dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp slash sacred text. Chapter 7. The Bogart in the Wardrobe. Malfoy didn't reappear in classes until late on Thursday morning when the Slytherins and Gryffindors were halfway through double potions. He swaggered into the dungeon, his right arm covered in bandages and bound up in a sling. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Caspar Terkile.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We are lucky enough this week to have a special guest to tell our story, Dr. Chloe Angel, who is a senior front page editor for the Huffington Post, a facilitator for the Op-Ed Project. She has her PhD in romantic comedies. That's technically what you got it in, right? Yes. It's definitely not media studies. It's just purely rom-coms. Romantic comedies. I'm so glad we have an expert on that. Um, And you and I became friends because of this podcast.
3: Yes, our friendship is pretty much the only good thing to come out of the election in November. Yep. I've
1: read studies that say that this is the only
3: good thing that came out of it.
1: (laughs) Chloe, you are going to tell us a story about the theme of humor. Are you ready to jump in? Yeah,
3: let's do it. Great. When I was about eight years old, my mother brought home a book for my older sister The cover was bright pink and sprinkled in cartoon drawings of lipstick, cupcakes, and stars. On the spine and cover, the title was written in the same font from the poster of my then-favorite movie, Clueless. The subtitle promised the truth about body and beauty, and the blurb, a hard, hilarious look at lies, damned lies, and beauty tips. I don't remember my sister reading it very much because I quickly absconded with it. I opened the book and found in its pages a crash course in feminist media literacy, plus cartoons and jokes. My favourite section was the lists of witty responses to people who make nasty or helpful comments about your body. Things to say to the body police. They say, You're a real stick, aren't you? You say, I'm naturally thin, you know, like you're naturally rude. They say, "Mm, you're putting on weight. You say, you're right, I don't have the body of a 12-year-old boy. Do you have one you're not using? They say, you've got no boobs. You say, dang, I knew I forgot something when I got dressed this morning. Looking back, most of the jokes aren't really that funny, but that wasn't the point. The point was the revelation that laughter is a valid response to oppression that you can take a moment designed to make you feel bad and use it to give yourself pleasure instead. The feminist media literacy book must have made an impression because I'm a feminist journalist now. My job involves a lot of turning insults into jokes. Some people say, don't feed the trolls, and sometimes I don't. But most of the time, I try to turn their insults into jokes. To acknowledge that they exist at all might be feeding the trolls a bit, but To laugh at them? That feeds me. Chloe, thank you so much. And first
1: of all, I love the shout out to the movie Clueless, although there's one flaw in that movie, which is that they make fun of the San Fernando Valley. Other than that, a perfect film. But I'm wondering, just because I have you here, can you do the work for me? Where do you see the parallel between the way that you told your
3: story and the theme of humor in this chapter? What really struck me, rereading this chapter, actually re-listening to it because I really love the Jim Dale audiobooks, what really struck me was that what Professor Lupin says is that you must force the boggart into a form that you, the student, find amusing. It's not about making everyone around you laugh. It's about making that moment about you and what you find funny, because the point of sort of body shaming or bullying or a bogart is to make you feel bad and that's an opportunity to to flip it into a moment that makes you feel good regardless of what anyone else thinks i had never thought of that but that's absolutely true i mean lupin teaches
1: neville to picture snape in his grandmother's clothes not just in girls clothes right chloe thank you so much for being here with us today
3: and for making us laugh in the humor episode oh it's my pleasure Thank you so much. I'm such a fan of the podcast, and listening to it and becoming friends with Vanessa is one of the best things that's happened to me in the last couple of years. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Vanessa, before we dig into that fabulous story, let's remind ourselves what happens in this chapter. Are you ready for the 30-second recap?
1: I'm always ready. People come up to me on the street, and I'm just like, what would you like me to 30-second recap? And they're like, my wedding. And I'm like, okay, I wasn't there, but let's do it.
2: <laughs> All right. right, <laughs> three, two one, go.
1: Draco comes to potions, and he's being a big baby and faking his arm being more injured, so Ron and Harry have to help. Neville is messing up, and Hermione helps him, and she gets into trouble for helping him, which is just—Snape is the worst. And then they go to defense of dark arts. His, um, Harry finds out that Sirius, something weird happened with Sirius, and they go to defense the, against the dark arts, and Lupin is a really good teacher, and he teaches them how to kill Bogarts and to make everybody laugh. And then Hermione—they are on the stairs, and Hermione is running late, and she's hungry!
2: it's all about Hermione
1: yeah for you it's always about Percy and for me it's always about Hermione if that's representative of who we are I feel fine about that are you ready Percy I mean Casper
2: I'm head boy (laughs) (laughs) treat me with some respect
1: (laughs) that's true okay our dear head boy are you ready bring it on on your mark get set go
2: so it's potions, and they have to make things that shrinking. And um, Neville's toad is going to be either turned into a tadpole or it's going to die because Neville's made a mistake. And so Hermione cheats and helps him, and so five points from Gryffindor because bad. And um, yeah, so Harry's freaking out because Malfoy's like, "Yeah, I'd go after S- I'd go after Sirius if I was you." Because mm. and then they go to Defense Against Dark Arts, but like Hermione keeps disappearing and she's running around and she's hungry. And um, he's an amazing teacher, that guy called Lupin, and he looks healthier. And then they see a moon. He's So maybe something's bad.
1: That was perfect. Did you just read something J.K. Rowling wrote to summarize the chapter?
2: (laughs) I just speed read. So like when I'm doing a recap, people just think that it's a recap. Actually, it's the entire chapter. It's
1: the entire. That's how I felt that.
2: It's amazing. I loved what Chloe was saying about using humor to kill fear. I mean, it's obviously what happens at the most obvious level in this chapter, but just the way that she brought it into her own life really rings true to me, and I think that's the genius of Lupin's teaching in this moment is it's not just about the bogger, like he's Forming the students to become more brave in the world to think of humor as a resource, which I think is a really interesting idea. How else did you see this relationship between humor and overcoming fear show up in in that moment with the Bogart?
1: What I think is really interesting is that you have to shift the Bogart into something that you find funny. So the object of the joke has to stay the same as the object of the fear. I feel like that's satire, right? It's almost like whatever it is that we're afraid of is political or is deeply psychological and emotional, and therefore you have to satirize the thing itself in order to overcome your fear of it. You can't just be laughing in general. You're not turning to a friend and laughing about something in the face of the Bogart during something scary.
2: Yeah, I love how you illustrate that humor is power. And when we think about where is Satire oppressed, or like where is it outlawed? It's because it's dangerous. You know, it can undermine a facade that is being put up by a regime, for example, or by a family that wants to look a certain way. Sometimes it can be taken to extremes. You know, I think of the British press, it's really famous for being particularly nasty in like hunting celebrities down to show that even though this person advertises this fabulous moisturizer, oh, God, here, their face looked really cracked or just kind of nasty things, which in some way they do provoke humor because we're laughing at people in some way. But it shows that humor is a powerful tool and can be used for good or evil.
1: Right. And I mean, the difference there is that Whether or not you think a celebrity promoting a moisturizer is evil or is scary, I think that satire in the face of something scary is great. Satire in the face of other things, it's like, well, are we just being mean now? I feel like we have to ask ourselves if humor is purely joyful and therefore productive, if it's satire against something powerful and therefore productive, or if we're just snickering about someone behind their back. That's not productive. That actually, I think dulls our empathy and dulls our sense of self and is prioritizing amusement over compassion.
2: So that's one of the questions that I had in this moment, because when I think about when do I experience humor, when am I laughing? Very rarely is it on my own. It's usually with other people. And what's difficult about this exercise that Lupin puts the students onto is that they have to laugh on their own. And, you know, this question of when do we know if it's mean and when do we know if it's just funny or silly and harmless, I think the sense of the relationships that you're in in that moment are really important. Because on the one hand, it could be a counterbalance to a meanness that I have to have other people with me who, if I make a really tasteless joke, other people can be like, no, that's not funny. But on the other hand, you know, you might be in a situation where you're swayed to think something is funny by other people who are around you laughing at something that is tasteless. I just feel like this question of who you're with is something that's interesting in this moment.
1: I agree, and I think the text speaks to this a little bit in that Lupin draws the answer out of Harry that... It's helpful to fight a bogart with many people in the room. Right. And even though you're trying to draw something that will make you laugh from it, it's still helpful that other people are there, that the fear isn't going to be as strong. The bogart is going to be confused and therefore not as strong of a negative force. And so I, I think we get a little bit of that, of like, it's easier to laugh with other people. And yet you still have to have your own identity of what you think is funny and what you don't.
2: I love that. And it feels so true that fear is more frightening, as it were, when you are on your own. And so to take it on together, literally so the boggart is confused as to what kind of shape it should shift into. I love that.
1: And I just want to pull up one of your points, which is one of the greatest ways that you can sort of fight bullying is simply to not laugh at someone when they tell a tasteless joke, right? I love the moments when somebody says something awful and they look at me and I'm just look at them straight face. And then I find that funny.
2: (laughs) I wish someone would do that to Snape.
1: (laughs) My God. Snape finds it funny to torture Neville, and Draco, Crab, and Goyle are like his little audience. There's a line Crab and Goyle laughed openly, watching Neville sweat as he stirred his potion feverishly. Neville is scared that Snape is going to make him kill his pet, and Crab and Goyle are like, haha, that's a great joke. Snape is irredeemable. I don't care that he loves Lily, I'm over it. Conversation done.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I do want to point out the really nasty moment that you're referring to, right? Snape <laughs> is pointing out the mistakes that Neville has made, and he's saying, then we'll test Longbottoms." you know, we'll test his potion. And he is, as you say, he's really playing to the crowd of Slytherins who were supporting him.
1: Who are 13, and therefore their senses of humor are not exactly sophisticated. Congratulations, 40-year-old man, you are making 13-year-old boys laugh.
2: Certainly, we're seeing humor being used as a weapon here, right? We're picking on the little guy to make us feel better if you're Snape. But I also think I'm seeing humor being used as an escape by Snape. We know that he he, he does love Lily, despite that not being a redeeming factor for you, ultimately. But he's clearly desperately unhappy. We know that he'll be revealed to be a double agent, right? There's a lot of conflict and a lot of hidden identity and a lot going on for Snape. I feel like he is using this opportunity to demean Neville as a way to escape facing his own pain. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I'm tired of that being an excuse. You know, bullies are people who are bullied. And... Snape feels bullied in whatever way. But, like, you have to interrupt the cycle. And I have a ton of empathy for children. And I think around the age of 25, your brain is fully formed and you are an adult and you have to interrupt these cycles. But something really interesting that Chloe said to me, you know, we were just chatting as friends about Harry Potter because... That's what I do. And something she said about Snape and Neville is that she wonders if Snape picks on Neville because he sees himself in Neville.
2: Of course he does. I mean, that's internalized homophobia, right? You pick on the thing that you hate about yourself. So he sees weakness. He sees someone who's an outsider, and and that's who he picks on. Because ultimately, he still wants to be in with the cool kids like Crabbe and Goyle. Like, you see this all the time.
1: He is a teacher, and he should say, oh no, that was me. I'm going to be extra supportive of Neville. This is a choice. This is a choice he's making. I'm sorry, unforgivable and unforgivable that McGonagall doesn't call him out on it, that Dumbledore doesn't call him out on it.
2: That's what I was going to say. I was like, in this situation, it's the manager's responsibility. So like, my finger is pointing at Dumbledore here.
1: Yeah, nobody is sitting in and doing teacher evaluations at Hogwarts.
2: I feel like there's a whole book to be written about like failed pedagogy at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry.
3: And 365 day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on.
2: Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grim Old Place. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. One of the things
2: that struck me, and I just don't know quite what to think about it, so help me out here. You know, the students are lining up to have a go at ridiculousing the bog And the first couple of students, you know, we have Neville who imagines Snape wearing his grandmother's clothing, the hat, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we see Ron who sees the spider. But we also see a number of students. Pavati, I think, sees a mummy, which then kind of unravels and trips over itself. Seamus sees a banshee. It struck me that, you know, we know for a couple of these students, particularly Neville and Ron, what they're seeing is something that they have experienced in real life. Ron, in book two, has to meet Aragog and all the hungry family members. And of course, Neville has to deal with Snape all the time. My assumption is that Seamus hasn't seen a banshee and Pavati hasn't seen a mummy. And so there's something there about humor being used on something that you imagine you're afraid of? Do, do you know what I mean? There's just a difference there.
1: Yeah, I just wonder if the mummy and the banshee symbolize things mm. that they're afraid of. Because, I mean, if I asked you what would the bogart be, I feel like what we're afraid of tends to be sort of abstract, right? It's like, well, I'm afraid of having a really painful death and just being in pain for six months, right? Like th- The thing I'm most afraid of I don't think has a physical form. So I wonder if... For all of them, you know, Snape represents for Neville a real thing, but also represents a fear that he's a failure. For Ron, the spider represents spiders, but also his fear of death. And so I just wonder if the mummy and Banshee actually are just symbols for other things for all these kids. Like... How scared can Pavardy really be of a mummy in and of itself?
2: Right. I think that is so true. We can't even imagine what we're scared of, I guess.
1: Right. You know, to the point with Harry is we even see in this chapter, he is most afraid of a Dementor. And so maybe once when they were really little, Pavardy and Seamus got scared by these things in a horror story or whatever. But what they're actually afraid of is fear, is feeling that feeling of fear. Mm. And so... I wonder if what we have to laugh in the face of is actually – I hate it when we say irrational fears because, quote unquote, irrational fears, I think are usually about something quite rational. When people are afraid of flying, they're not afraid of the airplane. They're afraid of an unexpected death, right? Mm. And so I wonder if there's something going on underneath all of these fears.
2: I think that's so powerful to think of each of these as different lenses onto the fear of fear itself. And if I can, I want to point to another place in the text where I think we see humor being used at the very, very end of this chapter. Like, literally the closing sentence is, Hermione has reappeared suddenly. She's hungry. You know, of course, we know that she's time-traveling to get to all these classes. And she says, Ugh, oh, I wish I could have had a go at that bogart because she and Harry don't get a chance to face it. And Ron teases Hermione by saying, Ugh, I bet your bogart fear is like taking a test and getting nine out of ten. It's the kind of like little snide jokes which are said with love, which reveal the kind of trust and friendship that's between Ron and Hermione at this moment. And I feel like, you know, in my family life, there's a ton of in-jokes, right, that the humor of our family is a lot about, you know, silly things about That time you sat in the butter. You know, all of those kind of things. That, But, like, those are the moments that bind. Do you know what I mean?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think a joke like this, specifically on this joke between Ron and Hermione, it shows that Ron really knows Hermione, right? It's like, oh, I know what actually motivates you. And when, at the end of the book, we'll see Hermione fight the Bogart and... I just wonder if the joke actually lands on Hermione in a hurtful way. Because A, Ron is right, which is nice. But B, we find out that the Bogart for Hermione is McGonagall telling her, you failed all of your classes. So it actually is an insecurity of Hermione, which maybe makes the joke funnier, but it also maybe makes it just a tiny bit hurtful.
2: But isn't that something that's always necessary in humor that there is an element of truth? that there's something there which gets either blown out of proportion or put in a funny context, but there's something there, you know, there has to be truth.
1: I don't think that that's always the case because I do think absurdity is really funny. So if I'm a you know, high powered lawyer and I'm making like six hundred dollars an hour at this meeting and I walk in and I just hand my client a fish. They're like, "Okay, there's nothing true about the fish. But I
2: mean, it is absurdity because the fish is pointing out the weirdness of the whole constructed situation that we're all wearing suits and ties like what on earth is a tie? It's a totally useless implement that we somehow use to demonstrate professionalism. Like it's absurd. But there's a truth in the absurdity. like.
1: Yes, I think absurdity is true. I just don't think there's like a kernel of truth in the fact of the fish necessarily.
2: Okay, I'm convinced. One other thing I want to look at in this chapter is the role of laughter. And we see at the end of the chapter, Neville overcomes the Bogart in his second go by one single laugh. Like, ha! <laughs> And it just made me think about like, how humor is developed, you know, how we learn to laugh, like, it's such a social experience.
1: So yesterday I had the joy of spending the day with my favorite seven-year-old, and she is currently going through the process of trying to teach herself how to be funny. <laughs> we watched a movie together, and whenever a character said a funny line, she would repeat the line. And then whenever I said anything that made her smile, she would just repeat it, like mumble it under her breath. Like, just really trying to train herself. And she kept going for laughs that I thought were hilarious. So she finished her cereal and then she licked the entire bowl clean. And she was like, now we can return this to the clean dishes. And I laughed and she was like, that's a joke that my mom made when she was a kid. I was like, "Okay." So she's very intentionally trying to mimic things that she finds funny And I do think it's true, though, that you can practice being funny. You know, you watch what makes other people laugh and you see that it's a power and that it can be a kind power. None of her jokes were mean. You know, they were just silly. But it was just a reminder that humor is something that absolutely can be cultivated. And she's hilarious.
2: I love that. You know, this is making me think of another point in the text, because, you know, Lupin introduces what the bogart is and that it's hiding in the cupboard and things like that. And he asks Neville to come forward first. And Neville is freaking out. Like, Neville's like, I have just been picked on, Remus. Why me again? And so he's, he's shy and he's hiding. And he's like, no, 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 no. And Lupin says, no, 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 come on. You're going to help me do this first. He's really proving to Neville that he can do more than he thinks. And he says, the first question he asks is, Neville, what is it that you're most afraid of? How about that as a question? Oh, my God. So, like, Neville's now really freaking out and, like, is completely silent. And so he just mouths some words. But here's the moment that reminds me of what you just said. Lupin then cheerfully says, didn't catch that, Neville, sorry. And so he is being so gentle with that humor, right? He's being completely non-anxious. There's no meanness in that statement, but it's light, it's humorous, and it's totally encouraging. You know, just like that seven-year-old is learning the art of humor in this frothy, friendly, funny way, I feel like that tells us that we learn a nasty humor as well. Like, these things are taught and they are learnt.
1: Oh, I remember when Friends was really popular in the 90s, I very distinctly remember feeling like my friends were getting more sarcastic. It was a very sarcastic show. It was – the shtick of it was like, could you be more whatever – And that joke was like a wave across the country. So I hated this show. I thought it was so mean-spirited. These are like six people who supposedly love each other and are so mean to each other. And I do. It was such a popular show that I felt like it really felt like I was watching my friends become weaponized with sarcasm. And now we all know that I'm never sarcastic.
2: (laughs) Could you be any more sarcastic?
1: I could. So Casper, will you go on a pardes adventure with me now?
2: I've packed my bags.
1: Oh, Wonderful, you probably brought chocolate and a candle.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> so just to remind everybody slash ourselves, pardes stands for a four-step Jewish reading practice. It's pshat, which is surface or the straight literal meaning of something. Then it's remez, which are the hints or the deeper possibly metaphorical reading of the text. Then it's drosh, which is sort of the meaning or the concept, you know, sort of the expository or applicable part of the sentence. And then it's sewed, where we try to see and maybe it won't come, but we sit with the text and we wonder if there's a secret that the text can reveal to us. So it's just two very short lines that I want us to look at, but I think that they have some really big implications. So the two lines are, Hermione saying, I hope there's something good for lunch. I'm starving. And Ron, a minute later, says, do you get the feeling that Hermione's not telling us something? Ooh. Yeah, so do you mind telling us the shot that's going on here?
2: Yeah, I mean, the kind of surface-level reading is that there's been a couple of incidents so far that Harry and Ron can't quite explain, right? Something's going on with her class schedule. She's seeming to take more than what's possible and she's just disappeared. They thought she was behind them, and then she's reappearing at the bottom of the stairs. So they're kind of confused. And it's kind of unusual that she's saying, Oh, I'm starving. So at this point, Harry and Ron are kind of getting conscious that something is going on, but they have no idea what.
1: Yes, perfect. A plus five points for Slytherin. Yay. Craven Goyle lost you a thousand earlier, so. Ugh,
2: the alumni network always gets into trouble.
1: <laughs> okay, so the next step is remes, where we're looking for hints or the deeper allegorical things. And specifically, we're looking at where certain words or symbols in these two sentences have come up in different spots in the text. What words jump out at you here? And what does it remind you of elsewhere?
2: The word that really jumps out at me is starving. It made me think of Hermione... In book seven, when she has been captured and, and she's being tortured and in Malfoy Manor, and even while the Crucio curse is being used on her, she is able to lie against the people torturing her, and so there's something she's not telling them. I, I don't know. I just see the parallel between this moment where she's hiding something fairly innocent from Ron and Harry, and this feeling of starvation or, or, or being deprived of primal needs. And this moment far later in the text, which is much, much darker, where those two things go together again, like Hermione's physical lack of sustenance and the fact that she is hiding information.
1: Yeah. So she is capable of sort of doing mind over body and endure suffering and still stay completely sharp.
2: Right. And in this moment, when she's much, much younger and perhaps still training that, she does say, oh, I'm starving. You know, She's kind of moaning about it, which does give away a little hint that something's up. While, you know, in book seven, as she's maturing into a woman, you know, she's able to be more sophisticated about how she presents or hides information.
1: I think she is starving and that that is an interesting side effect of this tool that she's been given by McGonagall with her ability to time travel, which we will find out more about later. But I also think that she's misdirecting the boys. She's like, blah, 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 I was always with you. I'm hungry.
2: Nice. Okay, so she's actually already kind of showing that skill.
1: She's already a woman. Ugh,
2: you're already fanning over Hermione again.
1: Yeah. But so the word starving is also what struck me because this is the book in which I see Ron and Hermione's sort of budding romance really starting. And starving is something that we usually attribute to Ron, right? Ron is the one who's always hungry and always has food in his mouth and is always eating 10 helpings of things. And so the fact that Hermione is the one groaning about being hungry at lunchtime, I feel like if you know you start hanging out with someone a lot or you start paying attention to them, you pick up their mannerisms and their ways of speaking and You watch the show Friends and you get more sarcastic. I think Hermione has become more attuned to being hungry or has, like, gotten more comfortable whining about being hungry. I feel like previous Hermione might have been, like, sensitive to the fact that Harry has actually starved and that there are real starving people in the world. But she's gotten used to Ron being like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And now she feels comfortable saying, I'm starving, when she's not really starving. So now is time for the drosh, which is, you know, now you can get preachy how you like, Cass. <laughs> how you like to do.
2: If I was going to write a sermon about this, I would say how important food is. I just think there's something really important about good food. I went on a lovely date night yesterday. Oh, with who? With my husband.
1: Oh, thank God.
2: <laughs> and we went to a restaurant that, you know, I'd been to relatively recently and it wasn't that good. But we were giving it another chance and it was Fabulous. And I feel like our conversation was richer because the food was delicious. I was certainly happier because of it. Sometimes we think about the grand architecture of Hogwarts. We think about the incredible teaching, not. But let's not forget about the incredible meals that these students eat every day. And the fact that that transforms them every morning, every lunchtime and every evening to do the kind of work that they're doing. I just feel like that is so important.
1: I completely agree. I was going to go to a different place with food. I, you know, we've talked about this before. I just think it's harder to be kind and to study and to do all these things if you're hungry. And Hermione gets more and more overwhelmed throughout this book, and she's getting less sleep. She's not taking care of her body. And this is just a reminder to me And what if I were writing a sermon, I would be reminding everybody that taking care of your body is taking care of your soul and your spirit and your mind. And that the only way you can be loving to the people around you is by being loving to yourself first. And now there are a lot of conversations about the commodification of the self-care industry. But I feel like eating right and sleeping right is something that can't be co-opted by anything. These are just important things that we need to do.
2: I love that. I 100% agree. As with the house elves.
1: Yes. Okay. So sewed. What secret has been revealed to us through this process?
2: Vanessa, what if... Because we know that the time-turner allows Hermione to do all sorts of things, and she suddenly appeared down at the bottom of the stairs, even though she was at the top of the stairs just a minute ago. What if the sewed is that rather than helping her move forward, the time-turner tool... Keeps putting her back, right? Keeps putting her back at the bottom of the stairs. It keeps making her hungry. This thing which we think is there to help us keeps making it harder for her.
1: Yeah, I love that. It's, I mean, it reminds me of Sisyphus, right? It's like as soon as she gets to the top of the stairs, she's just going to be sent to the bottom again and I'm trying to think about where I see that in my own life or I think it's a question I just want to be meditating on this week of what do I think helps me but actually hurts me as soon as I finish saying that the answer is my cell phone but I mean what else right like what are the things that I think are helping me get ahead multitasking is something that I do all the time even though I've read all the studies that say it makes you unhappy and it just means you're doing more not well right? Like you don't, even, you don't even get more done and you're just doing things not well and you're not enjoying the thing in front of you. So it's terrible for you. And I like cannot give it up. I will not give it up. So yeah, I wonder what other things are invisible in my life that I think I'm climbing these stairs faster than anybody else and taking advantage of things when really it's just this constant. I'm just going to keep ending up at the bottom of the stairs.
2: Let's hand in the time to as people.
3: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: This week's voicemail is thanks to Duke Lambert.
0: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name's Duke calling from Austin, Texas. I just finished listening to your episode on The Leaky Cauldron from The Prisoner of Azkaban, um, and I was struck at the end by Vanessa's blessing to Molly Weasley. While I think that defending Harry's childhood had good intentions, I disagree that this is what was best for Harry. Growing up, I found myself in a similar position to Harry after my mom passed away. Unfortunately, my dad had turned to alcohol to cope with his grief. And while I knew something was wrong, uh, I didn't really have, like, the language or experience to express what was happening. And to make matters worse, none of the adults in my life would talk to me about my dad's alcoholism. And I think that's because I was a child and they wanted to maybe protect me from it. But what was happening, you know, was already having an impact on me. Um, and it wasn't like my childhood was ever going to be like other kids after losing my mom. And I just remember wishing that someone would have talked to me, like, as a person who's dealing with something difficult, rather than try to protect me from what was already happening to me. Um, and I couldn't help feeling in this moment that maybe Harry, who's been through so much already at this point in the books, um might have wanted someone to talk to him that way too.
1: Duke, thank you so much for that voicemail and for sharing your story with us. I love that you see yourself in this story and I absolutely take your point. I think we should treat children like smart people who are noticing things. I I think there's a line to draw and I fall on Molly's side in this specific situation, but I absolutely take your point and really appreciate it.
2: And I love that you illustrate that there are so many conflicting... Desires. There's there's different ways to do it right. It's just hard. It's really hard. But I'm glad I'm glad you came through that difficult time. Thanks for sending it in, Duke. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless one of the characters we met in this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to today?
1: So I am gonna bless Hermione this week. Hermione really annoyed me in this chapter. Lupin specifically asks Harry a question, and then we know that Hermione is standing next to him, like, on the balls of her toes, being like, call on me, call on me. And it's just like, she's such a goody-goody. But she's not totally a goody-goody because she helps Neville cheat. And we don't know exactly why she does it, but Neville looks at Hermione and says, help me. Help me. And Hermione just does, right? It's like, this is not goody-goody Hermione who's only focused on her own potion and making sure that it's perfect and making sure that she doesn't get caught by a teacher. She just helps Neville. And so I just appreciate that. I don't think that's something she would have done two years ago. I think she's really grown. And I think it's something that probably, to some extent, goes against her initial tendencies to be that goody-goody student. And when somebody says, help me, she just shows up and does it. So to people who just show up when other people ask you for help, this blessing is for you. Casper, who would you like to offer a blessing for?
2: Well, they seem to be in the same scene because my blessing is for Neville. He is terrified, as we talked about. He's terrified when Lupin asks him to step forward but in his first attempt he's able to turn snape into this comic character he's able to to take the first stab at the bogart as it were and then lupin asks him to come back and in his second attempt he's able to laugh at the bogart and it just disintegrates and That need to keep trying and trying again and starting something that's difficult, even though it hasn't worked out before, even though you're afraid, was something that, I don't know, I just really resonated with me. And it reminded me of this little blessing from my favorite poet that I wanted to share for Neville and anyone who is having to get up and try again. So may you arise each day with a voice of blessing whispering in your heart that something good is going to happen to you. That's by John O'Donoghue is my fave. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Please join us at our live shows this summer in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., Philadelphia, New York City, and Washington, D.C.
1: Did you just get tired listing all those?
2: It's going to be a lot of fun, but I'm worried about sleepiness. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And next week, we'll read Chapter 8, Flight of the Fat Lady through the Theme of Desperation.
1: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkyle and me Vanessa Zoltan our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull and we are part of the Panoply Network you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm
2: a big thanks to our crowdfunded donor this week Andrew Stairs our voicemail submitter Duke Lambeth and Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and to Stephanie Purcell No, I do think you're right. I do think you're right. I'm still stuck on this image of a fish in a boardroom meeting and just and then leaving.
1: <laughs> so we're going to merge these two companies also. He has a bass. <laughs> it's still flapping around.